Hey, welcome everyone to our second holiday special for 2021. We're here with Jonathan Rosenberg from Memorial, and we are going to talk about bladder cancer today, sort of highlights of 2021 and looking ahead to 2022. Jonathan, welcome. If you want to just quickly introduce yourself and then maybe start out with your first sort of highlight of the year, big uh, clinically impactful data. Hi, I'm Jonathan Rosenberg here. So I am the chief of genital urinary oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and I focus on bladder and urothelial cancers and am, uh, have led many trials and continue to be active in, in all sorts of bladder cancer research. So this year, um, I think there's the biggest news was the first um, adjuvant therapy approved in bladder cancer, the FDA approval of nivolumab. Um, based on disease-free survival benefit um, in patients uh, with high-risk muscle invasive disease after cystectomy. Um, I think this was arguably the biggest sea change in the field, um, at least in the United States. Um, we, you know, it's an event-driven analysis, so we don't yet have the overall survival data, but hopefully we'll get that in the next year or so, um, and we'll confirm the data at that point. Jonathan, I did a I did a, a, a talk for IO ESMO. We went virtual. It's going to be a face to face meeting, but Switzerland changed its rules at the last minute, and so and I gave another one of my rather rambling talks. And <laughs> this talk was about um, endpoints for adjuvant therapy. And I looked at the melanoma data, and I looked obviously at the renal data. I looked at some of the historical bladder cancer data. Um, chemotherapy, adjuvant chemotherapy, has a ratio zero point five four. OS 0.78. And we, we said that was a negative trial. Um, and we, 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 didn't, we didn't think we should be doing that. That data from a PFS is better than the Nevo data. And it has an OS trending in the right direction with a 22% improvement. Why are we excited about adjuvant Nevo and not adjuvant chemotherapy? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. So first of all, I agree with you that, the, that we've um, looked at um, DFS as an inferior endpoint in the past, but essentially most of the time it was the secondary endpoint, not the primary endpoint, and the studies were negative as designed. It's important to remember that um, when you're thinking about the adjuvant chemotherapy studies, that they really were essentially all OS-based trials. Um, the other point I would make is that pa patients who've had neoadjuvant chemotherapy um, who were um, roughly, I believe, half of the patients in the adjuvant development study are people who would not have been eligible for adjuvant chemotherapy or even any adjuvant therapy um, in the prior trials. And so for those patients who have high-risk disease, despite optimal preoperative chemotherapy, there really hasn't been um, any option for those people. So that represents a big unmet need. And so I think for, on that reason alone, uh, this, is a, this is a big deal. Um, you know, the... Um, but your point is well taken. Um, you know, One some more of it point. comes down to study design. One more point, Jonathan. Negative atezolizumab trial, 0 0.85 for PFS, 0 0.85 for OS, about those numbers. I think it might have been 0 0.82. How, uh, how do we feel that the only OS data we've seen so far is negative? Do we think we're going to see the same with nivolumab? And uh, is it premature to assume OS, OS is going to be positive? in the knowledge that we already have a negative immune checkpoint inhibitor study? Um, what I would say to that is that the study designs were fairly different in terms of um, the overall structure of the study. One was an open label study where a lot of patients voted with their feet on the uh, teslizumab trial and did a lot of things off protocol. 
that um, very possibly blunted the effect um, of the trial. Um, and there were people that jumped from trial to trial, uh, um, ver- probably few. Uh, but that was, um, you know, I w- witnessed several patients who withdrew um, from the atezolizumab study after finding they were randomized to observation. It's also a risk with the ongoing um, uh, maturing study of Ambassador, which is also open label. And so I do worry that perhaps there was more contamination in the open label trials. Um, and I don't think we should look at it as um, it's a fait accompli that the nivolumab trial will be negative. I do think that it's very likely to be positive in the pdl one positive subset for OS based on the DFS uh, benefit in pdl one positive patients. Um, the overall population is probably going to be a closer call. Um, so, so time will tell on that. Jonathan, how are you using this drug in clinical practice? We haven't seen the DFS hazard ratio for the pdl one negative, to my knowledge. The ITT was, I think, 0.7. The PDL one was 0.5 something, so it's very possible the PDL one negative is around one. The benefit of the PDL one negatives presumably was doing the math, right? The benefit presumably was lower. Um, It has to be lower. Has to be lower, yeah. Right. On the other hand, um, and I know it's a subset, and you know I had to get all the caveats. But in clinical practice, are you giving it to everyone? I'm giving it to most people, and what I would say is that PDL one is such a messy biomarker, sure, that it's been. I've found it very difficult to feel confident that my PDL one test is the same as I commercial labs PDL one test is the same as a different assay um, that's used. Uh, you know, this is. Um, I think the PDL one data overall is clear as mud. I think it's telling us <laughs> that PDL one patients are about are, might be more PDL one positive tumors are more likely to respond. But as we've seen throughout all the data, it doesn't preclude response if you're PD-01 low. Um, right. And so, you know, making a patient selection on a biomarker that's flawed um, is is difficult. Um, and given the overall population data, I haven't been excluding patients based on PD-01 status. If, um, if it was, that's not let's say it's perfect. Let's say you had a PD-01 was faithful and you knew this patient was truly PD-01 positive or, or knew he, was, he or she was negative. So would you act on it? Prior, if they had had prior chemotherapy, I would I would put um, give it to them. And if they had not had prior chemotherapy and they were a candidate for adjuvant chemotherapy, I would give them adjuvant chemotherapy huh. um, if they're a PDL one negative, um, right? If they were PDL one negative and and platinum refractory, effectively, then that would be um, I would probably um, offer adjuvant nivolumab regardless um, John- if the biomarker was faithful. Jonathan, yeah. you're scoring about a 7 out of 10 on this answer so far. So this is, <laughs> so this is the pass fail That's a part. C. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the ESMO Guidelines Committee has given a 1D recommendation, oh boy. which is actually a recommendation against, weak recommendation against giving therapy. Your position is slightly different from that. It sounds like you're sort of a 1C where you're, you're, you're considering it. Um, why do you think, um, what's the difference between those two opinions? And, 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 and do you think that just the, the Europeans are, are more cautious? I suspect we want to see OS uh, and we're not going to change our minds until we see something from OS. Do you think ultimately that's short-sighted? I think it might be, you know, as we think about, um, as we think about the history of drug approvals um, for adjuvant therapy overall uh, in other diseases, um, 
all of them these days are based on DFS as the primary endpoint. Now, you could argue that in other diseases we've established surrogacy and perhaps we haven't in bladder cancer. Um, and that, you know, at a very, um, very granular level, that's true, I think. Um, but when we look at this, why are we holding bladder cancer to such higher standards that we are not offering our patients what might be potentially curative therapy, albeit with cost and risk of toxicity, some of which can be very severe, obviously. Um, but I do think we're holding our disease to a standard that we don't hold any other disease to, um, breast cancer, lung cancer, et cetera. DFS is considered a valid endpoint for approval of drugs and use of drugs in the adjuvant setting. And I think you can make a good point that bladder cancer occurrence is generally nastier than others, right? Renal Especially cancer occurrence can be much more indolent, et cetera. But bladder is not good, right? Those patients do poorly, quite obviously. Right. I mean, you know, what we'll see, I guess if the, so if the nivolumab overall survival data is negative, then that would belie that argument. Um, yeah. Right. And so if it is negative, I will rethink my thoughts on this um, and I will do another podcast with you guys. We're um, looking forward to that. We're looking forward to that. If it's positive. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll PD-L1, take excerpts of this podcast and try to back to you. We don't have the ability to do that. Don't worry. Well, what do you think about that now? So, so I think, you know, we need to see what that data shows, right? Because because yeah. if, if the disease, maybe, you know, just giving it a relapse is going to be just as good. My suspicion is not actually, um, and yeah. I, you know, just as the um, as a practicing oncologist, we all know the limitations of checkpoint inhib- single agent checkpoint inhibitor therapy in bladder cancer, right? Yeah. When it works, it's like holy water, and when it doesn't work, it really just doesn't work a lot of the time, um, and it's devastating to patients. Let's move to your second favorite topic, Jonathan of the year. Uh, so, you know, I think the ongoing developments in infortumabidotin are very, very interesting. Um, I think the uh, time to event data that was uh, presented uh, for EV Pembro in the phase 1B study is really pretty compelling in a cisplatin ineligible population with a PFS of about a year and an OS of about uh, over two years. Admittedly, a small trial. Um, historically, we'd expect six to nine months for PFS and 12 to 16 months, maybe at best, for OS. Um, and so, you know, these data, I think, are the data to beat in the first-line cisplatin ineligible setting. Um, and then the approval in the United States on, I would say, limited data um, for EV monotherapy uh, after checkpoint without needing prior chemotherapy. But I think it's actually a wise approval just because there are a lot of platinum ineligible patients. And then if they, blow, if they do not respond to a checkpoint inhibitor, you know, do you, or cisplatin eligible patients, what do you, you're left with just carboplatin. And I think um, EV monotherapy is a reasonable option for patients. And I think the uptake in the community has been pretty reasonable um, in that scenario. A couple of quick black and white questions, Jonathan. The first, is EV the best ADC that we have in front of us at the moment? Uh, with caveats, I think it is. Um, you know, obviously, there's no head-to-head data between EV and sasetuzumab govotecan, uh, but the response rate is higher. The time to event endpoints obviously aren't any different, in, but SG at the moment only has phase two testing. The toxicity of EV in some patients um, is really a concern and a problem, and SG in certain patients, in most patients, might be a little easier to tolerate. Although neutropenia and gastrointestinal toxicities are issues for sasetuzumab, um, but I think you know my own experience with the drug is that there's more palliation with EV on a clinical basis if patients are symptomatic, 
Um, and um, then I've observed with SG uh, in my practice, and that's that's my own comparative. Where do you um, where do you think EV? Where do you think EV ultimately finds a home in the year, three years, five years? Where do you think we'll be using that drug predominantly? In the ghost of Christmas futures. Ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> exactly. I, I suspect it'll be either preoperative or first line, depending on how patients present. Um, and probably EV Pembro if I had to put my nickel down somewhere. Yep. Um, the pre perioperative therapy, I don't know yet. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the question really will be whether or not EV Pembro in that setting um, can eliminate sort of so-called cancer stem cells, uh, micromets with the same efficiency as cisplatin, which is not highly efficient, I would say, at doing that, but does it in certain patients? And so, um, you know, that question remains to be answered. Um, but I think the first-line setting, barring a big toxicity signal in the EV Pembro larger trials, um, I do think will probably end up as a, as a first-line standard, either for carboplatin you know, may replace carboplatin and it's possible it might replace cisplatin in that setting. I mean, the EV302 trial is powered for both populations. It's an ITT population. So we're, we're going against both populations. Right. And so I, we either sweep them both away or, or, or neither, I guess. Right. Um, and, and, and I'm, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that trial is going to be positive and the challenge around that, around drug development in urothelial, frontline urothelial cancer right now is you need to think about what that, that trial is going to be like. There is some. There are some people in the community who feel that CTLA four has a role to play, and there are some people in the community, including myself, that think the uh, nine. <laughs> I've got a question. A question for a friend. Is... <laughs> so there are some people who feel uh, that that the Ipinevo trial's got a chance of being positive in the frontline setting in the biomarker positive population. What's your feeling on that, Jonathan? I actually think that that will likely be a positive study um, as well. You know, my own experience has been with leading the efforts um, in Checkmate 032, uh, which was the first study testing it in bladder cancer. And I really feel like my the only patients that I have in my practice who are off therapy and being observed um, without recurrences years later are those who were on that trial and responded. Um, and often had toxicity requiring stopping therapy. Channeling the ghost and, of David McDermott there, who will treat him for survival. And, and Mike Atkins and yeah. you know, all of those folks. I think there's a, there's a there there, as they say. And, and is it enough that's going to put the study over the line? Is the toxicity going to scare people? You know, this is the melanoma dosing. It's higher dose IPI, The You know, I remember also when I was an investigator on the trial, trying to keep track of everybody who was on corticosteroids. And what doses they were on was a challenge, and that will be a challenge to people. And when, and you know, even more so than you might have in renal because of the high dose of higher yeah. dose of ipilimumab. On yeah. the other hand, um, if we are seeing durable, maintained remissions off therapy um, in a you know thirty to forty percent of patients, perhaps um, maybe not that high, thirty percent of patients, that will be a huge advance. So I do. So then the question sort of becomes what you're dealing with in renal, where you have, you know, ipinevo versus TKIIO, more chronic daily toxicity with TKIIO combinations. I think with EV Pembro, the same concept will apply, um, whereas more upfront risk, um, but maybe more late benefit um, with an IOIO combination. Yeah. Jonathan, would you like to pick a third topic or would you like me to pick one for you? 
<laughs> Leading question. I think the, um, well, I think there's some really intriguing data, including stuff that you presented and what I presented. We've talked about this a little before with the um, TKI IO combinations of various sorts, um, particularly the FGFR3 IO combinations with uh, the Erdafitinib um, and uh, Pembro data and the Tezo Roga data. And there's also, you know, multiple trials percolating out there with uh, Cabonevo, with Citrovatinib and Nivolumab, with um, other multi-targeted TKIs that are modulating tumor microenvironment. And so I think some of that data, um, you know, at first blush is not as um, maybe sexy as some of the ADC data, um, but uh, certainly provides um, some reason for hope that for genomically selected subset of patients, particularly with the FGFR3 inhibitors, um, we'll see some interesting data. I'm actually looking forward to hearing uh, the results with uh, TDXD over time and the results with uh, other uh, HER2 ADCs um, in bladder cancer, because I think those may also allow us to have a genomically or, um, in this case, immunochemically selected population um, of patients. Uh, so there's some really fascinating stuff that we're seeing the first glimmers of, of real activity um, in, in subsets, just like we've been trying to do for years. So Jonathan, maybe last part, focusing on big data sets next year, and you've started to allude to this, like what, what phase threes are going to read out next year? Best you can um, tell public, public. Information, right. I don't, I actually don't know. <laughs> I have very little insight into that because I haven't been part of any of the big phase threes right now. Um, but I would say, you know, we're looking to hear the results of Nile, which is t testing the idea of four drug therapy will be certainly an expensive uh, combination. And remind me, what is that? Uh, trial? That, uh, oh, wait, not, not Nile. That, is it Nile, Tom? Yeah, it's or Nile's Dervatremi plus chemo. Right, Dervatremi ah. chemotherapy. Um, so, you know, two IO agents plus, yep. uh, plus standard chemotherapy as first-line therapy. I think Checkmate 901 may read out at least part of it in the next year, in the next year, year and a half. And then the non-phase three trial that will may change practice in the United States is EV103 cohort K, um, which is EV versus EV Pembro, um, looking to pull out the contribution of components of pembrolizumab to the EV-Pembro combination in cisplatin-ineligible patients. It completed accrual this year, um, and um, I'm assuming we'll see data, the primary endpoints, objective response rate. Um, and this is really the confirmatory trial to support an FDA or an accelerated approval uh, for the combination in the first-line setting. Jonathan, um, pembrolizumab had its label changed for a second time. Uh, in this year, there was no DAP meeting. We spoke to Arjun, who was involved in that recently. He feels that the pembrolizumab label was probably about right now. How do you look back on this story uh, that you've been involved with? Clearly, you led 210, which resulted in the accelerated approval of a tezolizumab. How do you look back on what we've learned from drug development um, with all of these changes to the label? And do you think we've ended in the right place? I, so I'll start with the last question first. I do think so far we've ended in the right place. Um, as first-line therapy, these drugs do leave something to be desired. And I think, you know, Kino 361 um, really shows how the pdl one staining may not identify the population you're hoping it'll identify, right? About half the patients were positive in that trial. Um, and I think that's part of why it failed. Whereas if you look at Invigor 130, which is the randomized phase three, comparing um, a Tezo to chemotherapy, about 20% of patients at the most 
uh, maybe even lower, 10% of patients were the ones who were considered PDL1 positive. Um, and in that population, even though it's a, like a tertiary endpoint way down on the hierarchical testing scale, there's actually a pretty robust benefit to, to chemotherapy in the PDL1 positive population. And so again, if your if your biomarker fails you, your your results uh, you're, you're not going to be able to select patients properly. So I think getting PDL1 out of the Pembro label and really reserving it to those patients who shouldn't get chemotherapy is was a good thing. We'll see, you know, the final analysis of Invigor 130 is still pending for OS. Um, and if that is positive, uh, whether it'll change practice for the chemoimmunotherapy, I don't know, but it may rescue atezolizumab in the, in the first-line setting for pdl one positive patients in the U.S. Jonathan, last question for me. Do you think we'll ever develop a biomarker for pdl one monotherapy in bladder? You know, I think the question is really, can we develop a multidimensional biomarker that's robust, easy to easy to figure out, easy to implement and use? And I'm not sure that it's going to be in the near future. I do think it's possible. Um, but, you know, pd one staining alone is probably is inadequate. And we probably need some combination of uh, TMB, maybe neoantigens, PD-L1 and CD8 or T-cell infiltration. Um, uh, and so, so what did you make of the circulating biomarker story? In terms of Do you, in terms of CTDNA, CTDNA. So um, the adjuvant therapy data that you you put together is really very compelling from Invigor zero one zero, and you know I think it's unfortunate that it was sort of a um, not part of the primary analyses um, because now we have to redo it all, and it's Invigor zero zero one one is doing that. Um, we, I think, are going to have a way to select patients. I do wonder whether CTDNA might be able to be used as an early non-response biomarker for first-line checkpoint therapy, perhaps, in patients. If um, we have to get data to look and see, but if you see your 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 fraction, you know, uh, your percentage of DNA sequencing is going up and up and up in the first cycle or two um, to abandon treatment. Um, so there may be a way to. Uh, actually think about how to use it in the context of a checkpoint blockade as well. Um, Jonathan, we did a previous Christmas podcast with uh, Silky and Chris, which has been widely described as a disaster. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it, it really is, this audio uh, is much better. Yeah, but, um, but during that car crash of a podcast, Silky and Chris were fantastic, of course. It was more to do with me and Brian <laughs> struggling. Uh, but uh, during that car crash, um, we, uh, um, we did manage to get off um, favorite festive gifts, both given and received um, over the last, uh, you know, during a lifetime. What's your favorite gift uh, um, that you, and uh, of course, uh, um, we, we open it up to anything you've received. So I've, I've had some quite spectacularly wonderful gifts from patients um, at the holidays, including um, a Hanukkah diorama um, filled with uh, chocolate Hanukkah gelt, which um, was a three-dimensional, like two feet high, three feet wide um, foam oh and hot glue gun masterpiece. Um, and it really was a shame to open it up and and um, uh, but I still have it uh, tucked away in my office. So, so that really was the uh, walking out. That's of like a, a life-size gift. I'm not sure. Right. That's, a proper, gift. It's That's like, a proper gift. Right. It really was. Um, and and you know, those are 
that patient is uh was someone who's done very very well on immunotherapy and um you know was grateful for for everything that the field has done um and so i was the beneficiary of that that uh, that gift and i have um i i really uh you know things like that um, really make your day for well, sure jonathan this has been terrific thank you very much for your time um have a terrific uh next couple of weeks and uh, a lovely christmas and um and thanks as always for uh for joining us and we'll see you in the new year my thanks, pleasure Sean. thank you so much take care yep. guys. take care have a good holiday you too